This is Echozoi Radio, episode 120 for April 2018, the first decade. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 120 for April 2018. Being this is episode 120 of a monthly show, it wraps up 10 years of Echozoe Radio. Being the last show of the first decade, there's no guest this month. Instead, we'll recap the show going all the way back to May of 2008. I'll play some highlights and clips of the first decade. If you're new to the show, or at least new enough that you haven't heard every episode, I hope the clips will spark interest in some of the earlier episodes of the show. Before we start, I'd like to remind you of Echo Zoe Answers, the short video show where I do my best to answer your theological questions. If you have any questions that I can look into for you, please let me know via echozoe.com contact or via Twitter or Facebook. I have a uh, question already in the hopper, and now that I'm wrapping this episode up, I hope to get to that soon, but would love to have more questions to put in the queue for subsequent episodes. Show notes for this episode are going to be a little bit different than normal. I'll have a list of the links to the past shows that we're going to listen into on this episode, so you can go back and hear them in full. And I also have a few very closely related episodes that uh, you'll, you'll want to catch. Thanks so much for your support over the last 10 years. The guests have been a lot of fun. I've also really enjoyed getting to know you, the listeners, as well, both on social media and occasionally in person. The show that kicked us off back in May of 2008 was one that I did with my friend Bob DeWay. At the time, Bob was pastor of Twin City Fellowship Church, and a lot has happened both with Bob and with the church since then. Bob is still a great friend and has been a great blessing over the last 10 years to me personally, but also an immense encouragement to Echozoe Radio. He's been one of the most frequent guests as well. When we started, he and I sat down at my kitchen table to talk about open theism. Since it was my first episode, I was really nervous, but Bob helped me get over that fairly quickly, and we got the show off to a great start. Here's Bob and me introducing open theism. Welcome, Bob, and thanks for coming in today to do my first episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm on the maiden voyage of this ship, huh? <laughs> yeah. Today we're talking about open theism. We'll discuss what it is, where it comes from, and some of the problems with it. The inspiration for this episode is an article Bob wrote for his May-June 2000 issue of Critical Issues Commentary, that's issue number 58, entitled The Foreknowledge of God. We'll discuss the article as well as the relationship between open theism and the doctrine of election. So to get us started, what is open theism? It's a doctrine that claims that God lacks exhaustive knowledge of future events. And particularly what they claim God doesn't know 
is the free will choices of free moral agents, future choices of free moral agents, as they would say. That's, um, they claim, is unknowable because these things do not exist. Humans create their choices in their, as they understand them. And since humans haven't created them yet, they can't be known yet. So God has to wait till they're made before he can know them. Now, free will theists, as they call themselves, or open theists, they'll claim that they're not really limiting anything. God still knows everything that's knowable. So they don't deny omniscience. Yeah, they say we believe in omniscience, but there's certain things that are unknowable, and there's no lack in God to not know what's by nature unknowable anyhow. And those things are these free choices of free moral agents. Okay. Now, when I wrote this article, I was responding to a book by the uh, by a guy by the name of Greg Boyd, who's a pastor here in the Twin City area. Right. And he wrote a book in 2000 called God of the Possible, a Biblical Introduction to the Open View of God. So I was reading his book when it came out, and I, re- I saw there that he claims that what's going on is that these guys are putting out all these scriptures to prove their point, and the critics are going to philosophy or other arguments to refute them. So why doesn't somebody try to refute them from scripture? Okay. So I said, okay, I'll do that. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to answer the challenge. You have a certain knack for that. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> That's what you do. So what are some of the verses that, that Dr. Boyd uses to support open theism? I see in your article you've got, first of all, Genesis 6.6, 6, uh, God expresses regret. Yeah, okay, let's just go through some of these articles, okay? Um, oh, by the way, I wanted, there's some other point I think we need to point out. Sure. Um, Dr. Boyd says this, Quote, God determines whatever he sees fit and leaves as much of the future open to possibilities as he sees fit. The God of the possible creates a choose-your-own-adventure structure of world history <laughs> and of our lives within, within which the possibilities of human free choice are actualized. But there's a huge problem with that because he wrote elsewhere, so God cannot foreknow the good and bad decisions of the people he creates until he creates these people, and they in turn create their decisions. But those two things, he's saying two different things there. Right. One of them, God determines some things but not others, and the well, other one says he can't. The choose-your-own-adventure obviously comes from children's literature, where you're, you're reading a book, and it'll say, depending on the choice you make as the, as the, the character in the book, turn to page such-and-such such for this choice or, or turn to a different page for another choice. So it sounds to me like, He's not leaving complete free will. He's, he's only leaving us a certain amount of choices. You, you, you take A or B or, or maybe a C, but there is no D or E. Okay, and that's what uh, Greg Boyd is trying to say here, that God kind of works it out that way. But the problem with that is if free will choices cannot be known just by their very nature, then you don't have the control structure that he's talking about because God cannot, there's right. billions of choices that he cannot know. He wouldn't know ahead of time to give us the path to choose. Yeah, he would, exactly. I said, basically, I said in my article, unless he knows all things, he wouldn't know how to structure this. Right. 
Okay, so I don't see this as a reasonable understanding. Now, somebody could say he just doesn't know what the free will will be, and then once somebody makes a choice, God can react to it how he sees fit. Right. Okay, and a real strict uh, open theist would have to say that God knows what he determines to do, but he doesn't know what these three moral agents are going to decide, so God will at the time, decide what to do about it. That was just the first five minutes of our discussion on open theism. There was so much more discussed, and if you haven't heard it, I recommend that whole show. You can find that at echozoe.com slash one, or click through the links on this episode at echozoe.com slash 120. In the second year of the show, for the February 2010 episode, I talked to Phil Johnson about the doctrines of grace. I was still learning the Reformed view of salvation, and Phil was a great guy to talk to. During the discussion, we began talking about total depravity and how the Arminian view does not deny total depravity, but Pelagianism does. For this clip, looking back to our discussion, we jump into a discussion of the differences between Calvinism, Arminianism, Pelagianism, and Semi-Pelagianism. But a, but a true Arminian, if he's an Arminian and not a Pelagian, a true Arminian uh, would believe in total depravity and w- would explain to you that, yes, Adam's sin thrust the entire race into sin and corruption from which humanity would be hopeless to extricate themselves. We don't have enough free will to do good or to please God apart from the grace of God. So the difference then might be if we use an analogy of a sinking ship where we're floating in the water, an Arminian might say that God throws us a life vest and we've got to grab it, whereas a Calvinist might say that he drags us out of the water already dead and breathes new life into us? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good illustration. Okay. Does the Bible teach free will at all? N- not in the sense that most people believe. A Calvinist believes in a kind of free will. And by that I mean this, that the choices we make are not under compulsion. God doesn't do violence to the human will mm-hmm. in order to draw us to Christ. He doesn't, well, he doesn't, the, the correct terminology would be to say he doesn't do violence to the will. He doesn't bring us to Christ against our wills. He, he gives us a new heart to believe so that we are willing to come. Uh, so that our choices are made freely and without compulsion. Every Calvinist, every true Calvinist believes that. The Arminian concept of free will is what we would call libertarian free will, which teaches that y- your your will isn't bent one direction or the other. The Calvinist says your will is determined by your desires, and since your desires are corrupt, your will is bent towards evil. And so in that sense, you don't have free will. You, you, you make the choices you make freely without compulsion, but it's your own nature that determines what those choices will be, and so those choices are determined. The Arminian has a concept of what we would call libertarian free will, where the will actually rules over the desire, so that you're perfectly capable of choosing good or evil, and all you have to do is make the choice without regard to, uh, you know, your nature. So the Arminian wouldn't necessarily see that your, your desires inexorably drive your will, but the Arminian, in the Arminian concept, you can virtually determine or revamp your whole nature by the will, so that the will becomes sovereign over your nature. And the Calvinist says, no, it's the other way around. Your nature is sovereign over your will. 
Sure, sure. But both believe that the choices you make, you make freely, mm -hmm. without compulsion. And you talked some about Pelagianism, and Pelagianism is something that I know even less about, but uh, reading a little bit of the writings of R.C. Sproul, uh, but my understanding of Pelagianism is that Pelagius taught that God would never command us to do something we are incapable of doing. That That's a right. A lot of Arminians believe that as well. I would say the distinctive feature of Pelagianism is the denial of original sin. Okay. The Pelagian would say, you know, your choices are your own, you make them freely. What Adam did doesn't affect you in any way other than that Adam was a bad example to follow. So if you're raised correctly and, and, and you live your life right, you could be sinless just as Jesus was sinless. Yeah, theoretically. And in fact, the, the original Pelagians, Pelagius himself, and he had a, he had a disciple who actually wrote most of the writings uh, of the early Pelagians. His, his name was Celestius. And Celestius said, yeah, theoretically, you could be perfect. And there may have been perfect people in history. And they cited Mary uh, and... Uh, Joseph in the Old Testament, Daniel in the Old Testament, these perhaps were perfect people because Scripture doesn't record any or doesn't condemn them for for anything okay. they did. So the Pelagians said, yeah, theoretically you could be perfect. But even if you're not, you can still change who you are by a simple free will choice. That's exactly what Charles Finney taught. And, uh -huh. uh, and he was a, a pure Pelagian, really. Wow. Denied the doctrine of original sin. Which, by the way, is a very important doctrine, and it is not a distinctively Calvinistic doctrine. If you're a, right. if you're an Arminian, a classic Arminian, and not a Pelagian, you believe in original sin as well. Roman Catholicism teaches the doctrine of original sin. I, mean, yeah, I was just going to ask you, what, where would the Roman Catholic Church fall in? Because they they do teach original sin, right? But on the other hand, yeah, they the, elevate, like you said, uh, people like Mary and and place them above that. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting study in church history to trace the influence of Pelagianism. Uh, and then when Pelagianism was declared an, a, a heresy, within really just a generation or so, there sprung up a new version of it we call semi-Pelagianism, which is very similar to modern Arminianism. just going to go there. And semi-Pelagianism was declared heresy by the Council of Orange in, I think, 529 A.D., Okay. And from that time, from 529 until the Protestant Reformation, you trace the history of Roman Catholic theology, and you can see it gradually defaulting more and more to a kind of semi-Pelagianism. And I would say the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic answer to the Protestant Reformation, more or less codified sem a kind of semi-Pelagianism as official Roman Catholic doctrine. So I would say that Contemporary Catholic theology has more in common with semi-Pelagianism than than okay. with true Augustinian doctrine. Sure. And and what the and I think this is a, perhaps a, a fairly accurate way to look at the Protestant Reformation that what both Luther and Calvin were trying to do and what they did do to a large degree was recover and even amplify the emphasis on grace that you find in Augustine's writings against Pelagius. Mm. And Roman Catholic theology then was a kind of middle road, uh, a sort of institutionalized semi-Pelagianism, where Catholics denied then that the human will was so corrupted by sin that, that men were incapable of, of choosing Christ.
That was episode 22. To hear that episode in its totality, you can go to equizoi.com slash 22. Now, for the third year, I take us to an interview I did with a former Jehovah's Witness named Eric Grieshaber. This was a discussion I remember fondly. Eric really loves the Jehovah's Witnesses and has spent decades leading them out of the Watchtower to Jesus. In this clip, Eric shares how he was saved out of the Watchtower. And as we pick up the story, he's at a gym exercising, and there are a lot of Christians there with him. He's approached by one of them. And a hippie came over to me one day. This guy looked like he just fell out of a tree, man. He was really sad, <laughs> bad news. And he said to me, hey, man, you know, uh, I heard you're a Christian. I know. He says, I heard you're a Jehovah's Witness. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, I'm just a new Christian, man. And he says, I don't know anything except that Jesus loves me and gave his life for me. And I thought, well, that's nice. I'm glad you know that. That's really nice. Uh, now I've got to get back to my workout. He said, do you, would you want to talk to me? And I thought, all right, you know, I'll do a Bible study. We can kind of, you know, get him going. And I said, you want to do a Bible study? He goes, no, no, no. He said, but I know a guy who used to be a Jehovah Witness, and he'd like to talk to you. Mm. I said, really? And this guy was in charge of a third of the United States for the Watchtower Society. Wow. And he left the Watchtower Society and moved to California. And I thought I, I knew of him, and I said, well, you know, uh, this is an important person. Why did he leave? You know, there's there's some reason. And Jehovah's Witnesses are always told, do not talk to one who is a used-to-be. Only talk to the to-be's. Mm -hmm. And if you do talk to a used-to-be, they're called apostates, that's what they call them, then you will be put out of the Watchtower Society. Well, I thought, well... You know, I, I can't let this one sheep go. You know, he was something. Mm -hmm. He's important, you know. And I'll go talk to him. So I did. I called him. His name was Bill. I said, Bill, uh, were you disfellowship from the Watchtower? He said, I'm not going to tell you. He said, what's your name? I said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so he hung up on me. So I called him back. I said, Bill, you know, one thing is that you definitely are rude. <laughs> I said, now, just tell me, were you disfellowship? He said, I'm not going to tell you. Quit asking me. I'm not going to tell you. What is your name? I said, I'm not going to tell you. Quit asking me. <laughs> so he hung up on me again. Now, at this time, I mean, it was my last change, and I put it into the phone. And I called him back again. I said, listen, just call me Eric, Okay. I just want to ask you, Bill, why did you leave the Watchtower? God's truth, why did you leave it? And he goes, well, you really want to know? Come down here to my office, and I'll talk to you. I said, Bill, look, I don't want to argue scriptures with you, because you and I can bang heads for a long time, and it's not worth it. I just want to know. He said, come down. We won't argue. Just come down. Mm -hmm. So I went to his office. And um, we go in, and he says to me, he says, uh, Eric, who's Jesus? I said, Jesus is, you know, the Savior. That's who he is. Well, good. That's wonderful. Is he the only Savior? Are there other Saviors? I mean, what was he before he was the Savior? 
I said he was Michael the Archangel. Are you sure of that? I said, yeah, I'm sure of that. How do you know? The Watchtower told me. Well, let me ask you something. How can you get saved? I said, saved from what? Saved from your sins. How can you do that? I, and, you know, that hit me right between the eyes because, in reality, I only knew that if I stuck in as a Jehovah Witness, I would get saved through their organization, not through a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, in other words, they were the mediator between me and God, just like the Virgin Mary, you know, and so on that mm -hmm. way. And this is why and, he asked um, you how many saviors there are. Yeah. He. And, that was a tactful question. Yeah, and it was it was amazing. And, and uh, so I said, well, listen, um, can you tell me? And he said, well, know the truth. I think I do know the truth, yes. Uh, do you know the way? I said, the watchtower is the way. Of course I know the way. That's why I'm out here with Job's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. Okay, then, do you know who gives you the life? I said, yeah, the Watchtower Society. You actually think the Watchtower Society gives you life? I said, yeah, in, in a kind of indirect way, they do, yes. He said, I want you to turn with me to John 14:6. I said, I told you, I'm not going to argue with you. He said, Eric, I'm not arguing with you. I just want you to read one scripture. And I said, well, Bill, listen, I'm not interested in reading one scripture because I don't want to fight and argue and, and uh, you know, go about all these little, you know, things. I, I'm just not, I didn't come down here for that. He said, well, that's not what I want to talk to you about. He said, just turn to John 14:6. I said, okay. Opened up my New World Perversion <laughs> and got there. And turned to John 14, 6, which, by the way, reads the same in this particular case. And he said, okay, Eric, read that to me. I said, listen, I told you I don't want to argue. All I want to know is the truth. Whatever is the truth, I'll follow. He said, great, read it. I said, okay. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I said, there, I read it. He said, well, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice saying. That's what it means. It just, it just seems nice. He said, Eric, are you looking for the truth? I said, I believe I have the truth. He said, read it again. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth. As soon as I said that, the truth, it is like, I, it's hard for me to explain, Andy. It's like the blinders came off my eyes. You know, the old time curtains that used mm -hmm. to flip up like that. It seemed like that's what happened to my eyes. I said, I've got it. Jesus is the truth. He said, that's what I've been trying to show you. I said, okay, if Jesus is the truth, uh, what way do I go? He said, read it again. I said, okay. Jesus said unto him, I am the way. I said, <laughs> I've got it. Jesus is the truth. He's the way. I said, okay, well, look, here's the deal. 
the bottom line. What about my eternal life? He said, read it again. I said, okay. Jesus said unto him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I said, I get it. Jesus is always the truth, period. No mistakes. Amen. No, uh, you know, no retracts. Uh, he's always the way. And at the end, you get the eternal life. And nobody comes into the Father but by me, by Jesus, not by the watchtower. Amen. And I said, how do I do it? What do I do? He said, well, first of all, does that sound like what Jehovah's Witnesses teach? I said, absolutely not. He said, well, would you like that? I said, well, yeah, I would like that. I mean, that's the life. I mean, mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm not a suicidal. This is what I want. <laughs> And he said, okay, why don't you just pray with me? Praying is talking to God. We're going to talk to God. We're going to tell him you want the truth. You want to go his way, and you want eternal life. Is that fair? I mean, is that, you know, what you, I said, yeah. So we did that, and that day, uh, I mean, a heaviness came off my back. It was like, you know, I was a new person. I didn't even really know what totally happened. I know everybody's got their, their own little, you know, buzz thing. But, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, all I knew was that I'm free, man. I am really free. I didn't even know why, but I'm free. Eric was a real joy to speak with. It's really edifying to see the people come out of false teaching with a zeal for truth like Eric demonstrates. You can hear that entire discussion at echozoe.com slash 29. Or with the others, you can click through the show notes for this episode at equizoi.com slash 120. Now, moving on to the fourth year of Equizoi Radio, my friend and ministry partner, Ryan Hobbin, had joined me for the first of two episodes that we did on the main biblical passage on speaking in tongues. For the first episode, which was number 44, we set the stage for both discussions and then focused on Acts chapter 2. And in this clip, Ryan is giving some cultural background behind his studies of tongue speaking. So let's um, let's remember the context now that um, we've seen these these prophecies and what happened with Israel was they were uh, sent into exile. Uh, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and ultimately the uh, the land of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And that really set into motion this um, this assimilation where the people of Israel really started to lose their quote-unquote holy tongue. Mm -hmm. Now, Hebrew did survive, but most people, now there there is some disagreement regarding this, but as far as the extent of of how much Hebrew was spoken, but most scholars and most linguists most of the people that do a lot of the, even the archaeological scholarship, would say that Hebrew was, was not a common language in the first century. The two common languages uh, in the first century, in really the, the land of, the, uh, of Rome. Now remember, in the centuries prior, Alexander the Great had come and, and conquered so much of that part of the world. And thus, there was what is known as the Hellenization of that part of the world, which was the influence of Greek and Greek culture. Therefore, Greek, uh, in the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ, uh, really became the, the dominant mother tongue of that region. Now, Aramaic, which was a Semitic language, still remained. 
But when we get to the point of the first century, with, with Rome in control now, virtually all people throughout that land, what we know of as the, the ancient Near East in the first century, were speakers of either Aramaic or Greek. That, that would have been their mother tongue. And there's some debate as to where and why and how. But in general, if you go to the east of Jerusalem, there would be more Aramaic speakers over in that region. Mm-hmm. The more you went west, the more uh, Greek speakers there would be. But Aramaic and Greek were both very prevalent, and especially in regards to the Jewish, what is called the diaspora. Now, the diaspora has to do with this exile. The, Jews, the diaspora thinks of being dispersed. You have Jews from, uh, are still Jews, are still practicing Jews, but they don't live in Jerusalem. They are dispersed, uh, and uh, that's going to be key when we get to Acts, uh, chapter 2, because they're dispersed, and they are going to be coming to the land of Israel, because at the time of what we know of as Pentecost, uh, Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks, and that is considered a a pilgrimage feast where uh, devout Jews would travel from wherever they're at to celebrate this feast, which was right around 50 days after Passover. So uh, as we, we, we uh, see that, uh, the Jews would be coming in from all over the place to partake in this, uh, this, this feast in Jerusalem. Now, the languages at work during this time, there really were four languages at work. And as I said, the two common languages, from all that we can tell, were Greek and Aramaic. Now, there were two sub-languages that were still in use. One is, uh, in relation to the Jewish culture, Hebrew was in use in one sense. Hebrew, and as I said, there is some debate as to how extensive Hebrew was used. But there's there's little debate that um, as far as Aramaic was much more and Greek were, were way more. And actually, most historians or linguists that look at the first century would say that Hebrew was mainly a liturgical language. It was learned by more of the upper, upper class, the elite. It would have been the Sanhedrins or those uh, of the upper class. They were. They would be taught. They would be. They would be. They would learn the the language of Hebrew. But the common people uh, did not know. Most of the common people, if not all of the common people, did not know uh, Hebrew. And, it was a lot like uh, Catholicism for many centuries. All the services, all everything was always in Latin, and the common people didn't understand it. They'd go to the service and just kind of sit through it, but wouldn't understand. It was kind of similar that the Jews would go to the synagogue and they would hear Hebrew and not understand it for the most part. Exactly. I think that's a, a real good analogy. We can see that up until six, right around 62 when uh, the Vatican ultimately decided to change it into the mother tongue of the people, the, 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 ma- the, the mass. Mm-hmm. Um, up until that point, yeah, it, everything was done in Latin because that was considered within Roman Catholicism the holy tongue. And in the same way, there was this holy tongue in, um, in the culture. And this was the tongue that the law was given in. And thus, um, 
during the feasts, the the priests would come out and they would give the liturgy in the holy tongue of Hebrew. And those that would come uh, would not, mo- I mean, most of those that would come would not have understood what was going on. So it would, yeah, certainly if we wanted to look to, to somewhat more of a mo- modern example, uh, it, it would be uh, the Latin within Catholicism. And there are still, uh, I know there are still churches, Catholic churches out there, that do their Mass in Latin. The pre-Vatican II? Yeah. Yep, pre-Vatican II, which was right around in 62, 1962-63. They, they, they think that going away from the Holy Tongue of Latin is, is apostasy. Um, so they remain. So we can see these, these elements, this, this Holy Tongue. Uh, there's a term, deglacia. It's a, it's a Holy Tongue. And uh, so that is another language. So you have Aramaic, which is a common Semitic language. You have Greek, which was a, the common language of the Romans. And then you have Latin. Latin is the fourth language uh, that we see uh, evidence in this world at the time. And really beyond that, outside of uh, particular dialects, that seems to be that which is at work. One of, uh, with the, the two main common languages of the day being uh, Greek and Aramaic. The rest of this discussion was very interesting. I picked it as the episode I wanted to revisit year, from year four because it was so memorable. Ryan dug in and had interesting insights into tongues that cut right through much of the differences that cessationists and continuationists have with each other's views. And Ryan's got a lot of positive feedback from both camps. Now moving on to the fifth year of the show, the episode I picked exemplifies one of my favorite topics and was with a guest who would become a great friend. Tony Miano discussed a very gospel-centric topic, biblical evangelism. Since Tony retired from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, he's made a second career of evangelism. Well, so I want to get into the biblical evangelism. My first question here is, is uh, I want to, well, I want to read a passage from Mark sixteen fifteen. It says, go into the, all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a weighty but wonderful command, but the... This particular passage of scripture doesn't come with a manual. Looking at all the scripture, what is the pattern that we can draw to, out to help us understand what is really involved in preaching the gospel and sharing our faith with others? Well, what is what is really involved uh, first is opening our mouths. Um, you know, the Word of God uh, declares in Romans ten uh, fourteen to seventeen, "How will they hear without a preacher?" the The gospel is both a spoken and a written message. Uh, most of the people uh, in the days of the early church could not read, so they relied on the few people who could to read them the letters of, of Paul and and the other apostles and and the gospels and the uh, and the law of God. Um, but uh, the gospel is is verbally communicated, and so the first thing is being willing to open your mouth. Um, next, not in importance, but uh, the next step is what comes out of your mouth, and that should be the gospel, that God the Father sent his Son to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man and without sin, lived the sinless life that we cannot live, voluntarily went to the cross, suffered and died for uh, crimes he did not commit to take upon himself the punishment we rightly deserve for our sins against God, and then forever defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. Uh, you know, oftentimes this term biblical evangelism is 
is misunderstood and it, and it's unfortunate that we even need to use that term mm-hmm. we should we should be able to simply say evangelism mm-hmm. but but there is so much in the world today that is done under the auspices of evangelism that is not evangelism that the term biblical evangelism uh, had to be coined and that is basically bringing the law to the proud and grace to the humble god is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. We bring the law of God to people uh, to bring them to a knowledge of their sin, to bring them to a knowledge of the holiness of God. And the Lord uses his law to prepare the sinful heart to hear the gospel of his amazing grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. So I, I really appreciate this method that uh, you know, you've you use, uh, Ray Comfort uses with Living Waters. That's kind of how I've gotten to know you is through Wretched and through uh, Way of the Master on the box. Uh, this uh, concept of using the law, what can you say about other methods? That Well, it's it, it, at Living Waters, we, we've always, uh, sometimes there's no way around it, but we've always tried to avoid using the word method. Mm-hmm. We we prefer the term principle we, because uh, methodology has a tendency to be uh, man-centered, uh, man-made, right. whereas principles are drawn from something else. Mm-hmm. And we see these principles of bringing the law to the proud and grace to the humble throughout Scripture. We see, we see Jesus do it with the woman at the well. Uh, he establishes a rapport with this woman that, according to uh, Jewish custom, he had absolutely no business talking to. And once that rapport was established, he immediately confronts her of her of her sin of adultery. Mm-hmm. Go go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. You've answered rightly that you do not have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Now, granted, our Lord and Savior has the benefit of omniscience, uh, where he didn't have to ask the lady if she ever committed adultery, for he knew her heart. Mm -hmm. But he began that conversation not by telling the woman about the wonderful plan he had for her life, but by confronting him, or confronting her, rather, about about her sin. Mm -hmm. And then he presented uh, grace to her. We see it again with uh, the rich young ruler. Uh, the very first thing uh, Jesus does when this presumptive man comes up and and bows down before him and says, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately confronts him of his uh, notions of goodness. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. For he knew the man's heart. He knew that the man uh, d- defined goodness based on the things he did, based on keeping the law. Right. And uh, going back to my first question when we first started. Yes, and, you, and, and that's and, what and fits G- in. Yeah, and Jesus, um, Jesus takes him through the law. Of course, the the man proudly asserts that he's done all those things since his youth. But then Jesus got to the crux of the matter and called him on his idolatry. Go sell everything you own. He had many possessions. Go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man walked away grieved mm-hmm. because the man was not willing to give up his God, his riches, 
to serve and worship the one true God. And Jesus, Jesus didn't run after him and say, wait, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lonely without you, or I know you have this God-shaped hole in your heart that only <laughs> I can fill. Uh, come over to my house for a no-strings barbecue, and we'll talk this over. He let the man walk away, grieved, because the man was proud. The man was not repentant, mm-hmm. and and Jesus didn't present to him uh, grace. Uh, we see Paul speaking of the Jewish leaders uh, of his day in Romans chapter two, do you say that you you know do not steal, but you rob temples and 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 so he confronts them, he confronts them with their own with their own law, and uh, and so we see these principles throughout Scripture of bringing the law to people to uh, to bring them to an understanding that not only have they sinned, but they have sinned against God and. And one of the reasons why this is so important today, especially in American evangelicalism, is because so many churches have made sin uh, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. A lot has happened in Tony's life and ministry since record- we recorded that show, and I've really appreciated his friendship along the way. It was the sixth year of Echozoi Radio that brought the, a topic that forever changed my outlook and a guest who has a gift for explaining it well. I came across a video called How to Answer the Fool, and it opened my eyes to presuppositional view of apologetics. I'd been following James White's ministry for a couple of years, but had completely missed everything he had to say about presup. It was Cy Ten Bruggenkate's video that explained it all, and he did so in a way that made sense to me. It had changed my view of apologetics as radically as Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort had changed my view of evangelism. I knew I had to talk to Cy. There's different schools of thought in, in apologetics, you mentioned evidentiary and now presuppositional. What is the difference and how does it affect your approach to apologetics? Well, I can best explain this by, um, you know, what I used to do as an apologist. And I think people might be shocked because this is how most people defend their faith. Let's say somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. What is the first thing that, Christ, that a Christian will do is they'll give them evidence for the existence of God. And this is the question I ask people. I say, where do you hear evidence out in the world? You hear evidence in the court of law. I say, who do you give evidence to in court? You give evidence to the judge and the jury. So if you have somebody coming up to you saying that they don't believe in God and you give them evidence, you're basically saying that they are the judge and jury and that God is on trial. When God is in fact the judge and they are on trial, we've taken and we turn it exactly upside down. So I don't do that anymore. Rather than give the unbeliever evidence for the existence of God, I expose that they know that God exists, and I show them that God is the judge, and they're accountable to him. So how do you go about doing that, typically? Okay, so that basically what I uh, was talking about was the evidential approach, to give evidences for the existence of God. And I'm what you would call a presuppositionalist. Now, I I really don't like that they give these things big words because people hear them and they turn off. Uh But a presuppositionalist is somebody who takes the evidence, the the beliefs that we take to the evidence. It's our pre-beliefs. See, we will all evaluate evidence according to what we already believe. And it's those pre-beliefs that we take to the evidence. Those are the things we examine. Because, you know, we're going to examine the evidence according to what we already, already believe. If somebody found evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an unbeliever, you know, they'll interpret that according to their non-belief in God. A Christian will interpret that according to their belief in God. So rather than examine the evidence, and evidence is great for Christians, you know, it's fantastic. You can even use evidences with unbelievers 
if you don't use it in a way that puts God on trial. But rather than examine the evidence, I examine the beliefs that we take to the evidence, and I show them that unless you start with God, you can't even make sense of examining evidence. You uh, use an example in your materials of the guy who thinks he's dead. Right. Yeah, there's a fellow, this is how the story goes, a fellow who thought he was dead. And um, he was going around his house, and um, the rest of his family members were really troubled by this, because this guy thought he was dead. And they're trying all the evidences, all the arguments to try and convince this fellow that he wasn't dead. And nothing would work. And they, they had an idea. They thought, okay, well, take him to a medical doctor. Surely a medical doctor will be able to prove it to this fellow that he's not dead. So they take him to the medical doctor, and the medical doctor thinks for a minute. He says, uh, do dead men bleed? And the guy thinks for a minute. He says, no, their hearts aren't pumping. There's no blood going through their veins. No, dead men don't bleed. So the doctor takes out a pin, and he pricks him in the finger. And some blood starts to come out. And the guy looks down at his finger, and his eyes go wide open. He says, well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> you see, this fellow had a presupposition that he was dead. So it didn't matter what evidence you gave him, he was going to conclude based on his presupposition. And the thing is, that's a cute little story, but, you know, these things happen in the real world as well. The, my friend Dustin that I was talking about earlier, he was uh, at a campus in North Carolina, and a female philosophy student came up to him and said, give me evidence for the resurrection. Now, Dustin is also a presuppositionalist, but there are times if people are not arguing about the truth of your worldview, they just want evidence, give them evidence. Mm -hmm. And Dustin has a photographic memory, so he gave her all kinds of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, he talked about the empty tomb and the responsibility of the Roman guards and the female witnesses that wouldn't have been trusted. And, you know, he went on and on about these evidences, and he convinced this woman that Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what she said? You know, I believe that this man rose from the dead. You've proved that to me. But you didn't prove that he's God. And my friend Dustin said, you're right, I didn't. You see, she had a presupposition of naturalism. She denied the supernatural. So if you prove a supernatural event to a naturalist, they're just going to file it. They're going to say, well, someday we, you know, we'll have a reason as to how that dead man came, came back to life. In the meantime, Carl Ripley's believe it or not. Mm -hmm. You see, and that's why I don't focus on the evidences. I focus on the beliefs that we take to the evidences. It's like a dog chasing his tail. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... How do you walk a non-believer through reason to show them that uh, their worldview isn't quite as robust as they think it is? Well, I really like the way that you phrase that because I can't show them that their worldview is not robust. And, and that's the mistake that a lot of presuppositionalists make and a lot of people that criticize the view. I can't show them anything because these people are blinded. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 1. I can't show them anything. What I'm doing is actually exposing the fact that they're without excuse in the hope that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to it. See, in um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, it says, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. See, these people must repent before they can see the truth at all. Uh -huh. What mostly we're trying to do is we're trying to get these people to see the truth with evidences so that they repent. When Scripture says they must repent first. So I'm not trying to get them to see anything. I'm exposing it. And uh, I, I find the, very, the easiest way to do that is to expose the fact that they can't know anything without God. See, Proverbs 1, 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Colossians 2, 2, and 3, it says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when I go up to an unbeliever, I basically start by saying, Look, this is what the Bible says. I, you know, I don't, I'm not into the bait-and-switch stuff. I tell them right off the bat, I'm a Christian. I say, look, this is what the Bible says, that you need God to know anything. Now, I understand that you might think that's crazy because I believe in a book that says some things that don't make a lot of sense to you. You know, if you don't start with God, of course, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
But what I'm going to expose is that if unless you start with God, you can't know anything at all. So let me ask you this question. Could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? And you'll be surprised that in the high 90 percentile of people you ask that question, they'll say, well, I want to be intellectually honest. So I'm going to say, yes, I could be wrong about everything I claim to know. And I say, well, at that point, the, the discussion, the debate is over because they've entered the realm of absurdity. Because if you could be wrong about everything you claim to know, you could be wrong about that too. Yeah. But this is how I exposed them. I said, look, if you say you could be wrong about everything you claim to know, it follows that you know nothing. And this is the example I give. I said, let's say, you know, you, we're usually outside and we're near a street. And I said, let's say you ask me the speed of the street over there. And I said, it's 40 miles per hour, but I could be wrong. Do I know it? I say, no, not if you could be wrong, you don't know it. And I say, well, if you say you could be wrong about everything you claim to know, it follows you know nothing. And that's absurd. And I say, that's your option, Jesus Christ or absurdity. Now, you might very well choose absurdity because you love your sin, but that is the option. And that's why I urge them to repent and trust Jesus Christ, you know, as their savior, because Jesus Christ did not only die to save souls for eternity, he died to save reasoning now. And you can see in the film, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but you can yeah, see absolutely. that very quickly, very intelligent people are reduced to absurdity. And that's why, you know, it's, it's an immediate gospel proclamation. And, you know, people sometimes criticize me for not getting the gospel out in these conversations, but I say, this is part of the gospel. Because if I stop somebody on the street and I say, look, I'm going to give you free open heart surgery and I'm going to pay for it. You know, they're going to say, get your hands off me, you freak. Get away from me. Yeah. But, if I, but if I expose the fact that they have four plugged arteries and that they need heart surgery, they're going to embrace me. So what I'm basically doing is saying that they need surgery. I'm exposing the folly of their reasoning. Not that they can see it, but the hope, in the hope that the Holy Spirit exposes it to them. That might, they might want to come to embrace the solution. After Tony Miano and Saiten Brugenkate, it should be no surprise that the episode that I picked to reflect back on year seven would be on the gospel. For many years, I was fairly regular reader to the Pyromaniacs blog, enjoying the articles by all three of the regulars there. And over the course of the decade of podcasting, I've had occasion to interview all three of them at least once each. And the obvious topic to discuss with Dan Phillips was his book, The World Tilting Gospel. Now, I don't often mention this on the podcast, but I'm not generally keen on doing shows based on people's books. However, when the book is on a topic I really want to talk about, it does provide a great opportunity for a podcast episode. My discussion with Dan was not only a great topic, but the book is one that I have on my shelf, and I would recommend anyone else to put on their shelf as well. As for episode topics, there are none better than basic, yet raw and powerful, gospel. I like that you juxtapose first you're starting. We just talked about that whole worldview being flipped upside down in the garden and how that's carried through to humanity. And it has flipped us so much that we don't yeah. see sin for what it is. And the only way to really see how serious sin is, is what you just said. Look at the cross and look how Jesus so didn't want to go there or, or ask the God, take that from him. It's really the only way our our feeble little minds can even comprehend the state we're in. Well, that's absolutely right. We we trivialize sin. I mean, we even use the word to to modify things in a positive way. We say that something's sinfully delicious or mm -hmm. sinfully good, you know? I mean, that's like imagining us saying that something is child-molestingly good. Yeah. <laughs> it's racingly delicious, you know? People would be horrified if you use those words to right. modify something and, and make it sound good. And yet we use the word sin. So uh, that's that's why I thought I would take that approach, that the, 
the measure of how disastrous sin was and 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 how disastrous its effect on us was the measure of that is what it took to save us yeah <laughs> it didn't it didn't take a a, a a legal transaction or a you know paperwork to save us it took the son of god giving everything he had to give but also reaches to the core of what uh, makes christianity christianity and what separates us from every other religious system on earth is Christianity is the only worldview that acknowledges that our situation is so bad. We can, there's, there's not even a possibility that we can do anything to get out of it. We can't turn around, change our mind and just do good things and then get off the hook. I mean, it took the death of, of God himself to undo what we did. That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's why the gospel is world-tilting. It's why I call it the world-tilting gospel. Mm-hmm. Too many people think that becoming a Christian is a matter of adopting a couple new viewpoints or, or altering a couple of their opinions. And in reality, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a sea change. It's a paradigm shift. It's a complete change in the way we look at everything. Mm-hmm. Now, and I'm convinced that's why we see as many apostasies as we do. We see the, the Rachel Held Elvinses and the you know, the others, uh, Heard Evans, um, the others who are, you know, drifting off into affirming homosexuality, affirming this or that, the other thing. Right. It's because they, they didn't at the start realizing just how deeply sin had vitiated them and what a complete transformation the gospel is. Mm-hmm. And that's why I try to set on the world tilting gospel. That's why I start with the start and finish with the finish, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to, to show that it is a, uh, it's a transformative encounter that changes the way we look at everything. Mm-hmm. And you get into the nature of uh, penal substitutionary atonement also. And I do endeavor to. Do you want to try to tackle that a little bit before we move on? Or, I mean, sure. That, that is... um, I, I, I just show that penal substitutionary atonement is not something that we first meet in Romans chapter 3. It's something we meet in Genesis chapter 3. Mm-hmm. That, that the first thing God did... Um, after man, woman sinned, is that he uh, he made a blood sacrifice of an innocent victim on their behalf. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's penal substitutionary atonement right there. That is, uh, let me uh, break that down in case you've got someone listening who's unfamiliar with that <laughs> phrase. Mm-hmm. Penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, there is there is a penalty owed. There is a guilty person who owes a legal penalty, mm-hmm. and that penalty falls on a substitute. And that substitute pays the price on behalf of the guilty person. So Adam and Eve have sinned, and they're naked. Being naked before was no big. Now being naked is embarrassing because they have guilt. And so they try to cover it with vegetables, and God sheds the blood of an animal and covers it with animal skin. So mm-hmm. he's showing them right off the start their guilt would be dead with that would be dealt with by the bloodshed of another, and he says so also, and I, I get into this, I do some pretty thorough exegesis of this interpretation of, of uh, Genesis 3.15 in the World Tilting Gospel, that God promises a seed of the woman who would be struck on his heel, but with his heel would strike the serpent's head. Mm-hmm. So that would be a bloody wound, but in being wounded bloodily, he would destroy the representative of, of opposition to God, he would he would crush the serpent's head. So this is we haven't even gotten out of Genesis three, and <laughs> yeah. we already have a prophecy of penal substitutionary atonement. And so I just 
I do develop a bit how um, that we, we get into the law of Moses and you see bloody sacrifice and you see the principle explained in uh, Leviticus 17:11 that the blood represents the life of the victim poured out in a bloody death on behalf of, in the stead of, the guilty victim. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, makes atonement for his sin, covers his sin. Over the span of eight years, I dedicated January episodes to the essentials of the Christian faith. It began with my friend Patrick Shalopsky and an overview episode. Patrick then came back for two more episodes, each getting into one of the seven essential doctrines that we covered in that first episode. I was a little surprised when he declined to come back for another episode back in 2012, and it was several years later that I learned the reason. Patrick had walked away from his faith. He'd been a false convert all along. I still pray for him, that he would come to a true and saving faith. And those episodes are still in the archives because there's nothing doctrinally wrong with what we discussed. But after Patrick declined to finish out that series with me, I had scrambled to find another guest and topic for January 2012. And then I picked the series back up with my friend Bob DeWaybed beginning in 2013. Bob saw me through the rest of the series with one exception. Bob had had some rather serious health problems going back to at least 2010, if not earlier, and was unable to do the show with me in 2016. So I'd already done an episode with R. Scott Clark of Heidelblog and Heidelcast, and I was pleased to have him fill in for Bob that time around. So he joined me for episode 93, which was the latter half of the eighth year of Echozoi Radio to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. Maybe we'll just kick off and talk about kind of the basics of the Trinity. I think most people have some understanding, but it's always good to start off with the basics. The most basic thing that we can say about the Trinity is that God is one God in three persons. And so there are not three gods, and there is not one person. And, and so um, it's, it is really at, at bottom a mystery. Immediately, as soon as we say God is one, and that's a basic biblical teaching. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so uh, that teaching is uh, without controversy in the history of, of Christian teaching. It's, uh, that's a proposition, that's a, a declaration, a confession accepted both by Jews and Christians and, and even Muslims. Now, we understand that somewhat differently. In the New Testament, uh, we come to see more clearly what was shadowed in the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures, that the God who is one is one in three persons. And we can say some things about that, and we should, and there's, there's a fair bit to say, but uh, at bottom, it is a mystery how it is that God is one, but he is one in three persons. Uh, and yet we have to say it. One of my favorite summaries, ancient summaries, of the Trinitarian faith is the Athanasian Creed, the date of which is not entirely certain, but sometime between the 4th and 7th centuries, the Athanasian Creed was formulated as after, obviously, Athanasius, and he did not himself write it, but it's a, a fair summary of where the church landed uh, on these questions, particularly the questions that were argued in the 4th century uh, at the councils of Nicaea and then later at Constantinople in 381. And the first article or the first line of the Athanasian Creed says, Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary 
that he hold the Catholic faith. And by Catholic here, we mean the universal ecumenical faith, not the Roman faith, Mm -hmm. right? But that which is held by all believers in all times and in all places. And he goes on to say, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And then it goes on from there, and we can get into that later. But that's the basic structure, that the doctrine of the Trinity is an ecumenical doctrine, a universal doctrine. All Christians, all times, all places have believed it. In the second century, we believed it and taught it, and uh, we didn't understand it as fully as we did in the third and fourth centuries and following, but certainly we taught it and believed it because it's it's in the Bible. And it's essential to being a Christian. That's why the Athanasian says, which faith except everyone to keep whole and undefiled, uh, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So it's not an optional doctrine. As sometimes it's mm-hmm. presented as if, well, you know, all you really do, all you, have, all you must do is believe in God. And if you get the Trinity, that's great, but that's sort of icing on the cake. And, and I always try to stress to people, no, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a second blessing. It is an essential, basic, fundamental Christian doctrine. I was just writing about it this morning. Uh, the question is uh, circulating uh, just now as you and I are talking, uh, whether it's proper for Christians to say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Mm-hmm. And the minute you address this question, uh, you almost immediately as a Christian have to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity, which Islam denies and mm-hmm. Christians affirm. And the uh, I was just reading uh, the uh, Quran this morning which explicitly denies and repeatedly denies the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And it denies other basic Christian doctrines explicitly as well. So uh, it, it is a, a point of controversy. It's something that distinguishes us from uh, other religions. It's a universal doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. And the most basic summary statement is, right, God is one. In three persons, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So we need mm-hmm. to hold to one substance, three persons, and, um, and we can go from there. But that's the starting point. And as I say, it's, it's really uh, taught uh, implicitly throughout Scripture uh, in the Hebrew and Aramaic Scriptures, broadly conceived the Old Testament, and explicitly taught in the New Testament. I think the the great challenge we face in our time is that, uh, as I suggested earlier, many Christians take it as a sort of uh, optional doctrine yeah. or a, a disposable uh, doctrine. And, and the reason I say this is that in my experience, and I've seen some surveys that suggest this as well, that whenever we ask Christians to state the doctrine of the Trinity, if they can do it at all, almost always they give a, a heretical An analogy. That the the default view among most Christians in the West, uh, left to themselves without instruction, has been modalism. Yeah, the, the the notion that God's not really one in three persons, but He's one and He appears to be three persons. He takes on different forms, which sure. is modalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and we teach this all the time in our Sunday schools. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure somewhere in the world today, or in the world this coming Sunday, somebody will say, "Well, God is like." Uh, 
you know, he's like H2O. It can be uh, liquid, can be frozen, or it can be a gas. And there, mm-hmm. in fact, on the on the Heidel blog, heidelblog.net, uh, I've listed, I don't know how many now, it is 18, 19, 20 different illustrations of the Trinity. And somewhere, I'm sure this Sunday, somebody will, will use one of them. And every single one of them leads to confusion. And even, I don't think it's too strong to say, heresy right. about what, what the nature of the Trinity is, what the nature of God is. Moving on to the ninth year of the podcast, I decided to pull a clip from an episode I did with Fred Butler. Fred and I both went through a period early in our Christian walks where we were afraid to engage in some of the activities that are common to our culture for fear that they were dishonoring to God. The big one for both of us was Halloween. However, both also independent of each other came around after some time and some maturity to the view that it's really okay to engage in some of the more innocent Halloween related activities such as handing out candy to the neighbor kids and taking our little ones trick-or-treating with a clear conscience. You know, my wife and I, when we first got married, we didn't want to have anything to do with that. And I think it was a neighbor um, across the uh, way from our townhouse where we lived who uh, he had just kind of come to know the Lord. Um, He was an old 80s TV star actor who'd played on a number he was always the tough guy or the bad guy like on a you know um simon and simon or something like you know one of these shows like uh-huh. he's a magnum pi he'd be like one of the gangster guys he did it and uh, my friend um just come to know the lord and to him he saw halloween as this great opportunity to you know hand out john MacArthur tapes of all things mm-hmm. and so he would come to me and ask me for john MacArthur tapes and i'm like oh because we were still doing tapes at the time and he's i said well yeah sure and it, it, but his you know it's like yeah we can you got people coming right to your door and you can give them literature and invite them to church and i got stuff for my church and so if you got some john MacArthur tapes i'm going to give that to the parents and invite them to come and you know and so he he loved it he got all into it and my wife and I just began to think, it's like, look, we understand that this is Halloween. You know, obviously it has this witchcraft history and all of this stuff that's maybe 1,500 years old now. Yeah. But um, you have an opportunity to really ha- – your neighbors are coming to your house. Instead of being seen as these stick-in-the-mud Christians – you know, who are not friendly and um, don't want to talk about. No different than Jehovah's Witnesses at this point. Yeah. I mean, they're like, they won't celebrate any holiday. They won't do anything. They don't vote. They don't, I mean, it's just like, just withdraw from society. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, she started, she's, we're like, why don't we do something where we're seen as approachable and loving and, and caring about our people and hey we want your kids to come we'll give them a little candy and oh she looks like a princess i mean mm-hmm. what what really is the big deal is kind of what we started thinking about and i think also what really began to germinate in our hearts is that halloween is the day of the reformation mm-hmm. halloween historically is called all saints eve and the next day, November 1st, is All Saints Day, and it is when the Catholic Church would open up all of their churches and all of their cathedrals. And the people would go in, and they basically would, you know, make prayers for, uh, you know, for their loved ones that were in purgatory. 
And it was when Martin Luther, on the day before, because Rome at that time was basically making merchandise of this false doctrine of purgatory, that he, he nailed his 95 theses on the door, Wittenberg door, in order for the people the next day to walk in and they'd see this big thing basically speaking out against making merchandise of of purgatory or the doctrine of purgatory and praying for the saints and because they'd put the money in there. And if you put money, give money to the church, I mean, it's just like it is with the uh, health and wealth gospel. You give money to the priests, you know, they're going to pray for your people and, you know, Hey, I'll pray the hundredfold blessing. You know, there's the same idea. And um, in, in Christians, we just thought have this wonderful opportunity to be uh preaching the doctrines of the Reformation. This is what God, this is the true gospel. Uh, we have a friend of ours that he puts a big bust of Luther out by their bowl of candy there by their door. And yeah, I mean, you got kids coming with their, you know, dressed like Dracula and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, we give them stuff to listen to, or we talk to the parents about, the Reformation. I mean, that's you, you've got this opportunity to witness and share your faith, and what better time? And you got these people coming by, and they're wanting to be there, and all the, all the neighbors are out greeting each other, and you normally don't see each other anyway. And here you are, this Christian who's locked in his room, locked in his house, because, well, this is the devil's night, and I don't want to have anything to do with it, and yeah. I'm holy, and all this sort of thing. And so we just sort of had this transformation of heart. And so we we just don't see Halloween like that anymore. And I think you would probably agree with me too that your children also have a big impact on that as oh, well. Oh yeah, that's how I was just going to go. Is like when when you when you have a baby, you know, you, they, that first child, they're still so little that you can shut the lights off and you know no big deal. But once they hit that maybe two or three, you know, by four yes. years old, then you, they start wondering, well, why are they all the, all the other kids in the neighborhood running around dressed up and fancy costumes and stuff and and we had neighbors um who had they had a boy and a girl and we had we now have three boys but um and now a baby girl but they used to bring over uh the toys that their kids would grow out of especially their son because he was he's like mm-hmm. five years older than our our oldest and so he'd grow out of stuff and they would want to get rid of it and so they just bring it over to our house and and our kids would would give it new life you know and um uh, kind of like uh woody on on a Toy story, you know. Uh, Right. So um, they brought over like a big bag full of nicer Halloween costumes, and you know, when I grew up, I think it was like you did. You know, you get the plastic stuff. Like it was like it was like a painted garbage bag, basically, with a Superman logo on it. Yeah, you shimmering kind of Batman. It had like a big giant Batman's thing on the front, and then then the super thin plastic plastic mask that, like, before you actually get out of the house, it would be. The, the little staple that hold the rubber band on it would would come would break and right. yeah almost and you would try to keep that thing for a year because oh, I'll use this next year but oh, you no know way. usually the plastic starts cracking right away yeah so they brought us like these little like a little dinosaur thing that was like made out of cloth and stuffed and it was like really nice shape and and then like a who's the fire guy on Fantastic Four you know it was one of those right, right. those costumes so so we got these costumes here and the kids are wondering well you know if they're like well we want to be able to use those and go do some trick-or-treating and stuff so yeah definitely kids right. start kind of have making you rethink that and is this really as bad as is the jack chick track makes it right. sound and 
Yeah, I hear you. And that's and our kids were the same way. And they had friends that are like, hey, how come you didn't go? How come? Well, we're going to go trick or treating. What are you going to go in Halloween? What are you going to do? And we we'd be like, yeah, I don't know. And but we're just thinking, you know, do we want our kids to be having this jaded, hysterical kind of conspiracy driven view of Halloween, or can we let them go and do the innocent stuff? I understand Halloween's yeah. got some ghoulish, dark elements to it. And uh, we we don't go down to the Universal Studios. We don't do that. And most of the, and I, as far as I know, I don't really know any Christians that are in my circle of friends who would even want to go down there and participate in that stuff. Okay. But you've got a if you've got a neighborhood with a lot of sweet neighbors who are your friends, and you know why can't they? bring their kids over and you give them some candy and say hi to them and be friendly. And why can't you walk your kids around? Yes, exactly. And it's it the same with, uh, you know, let the kids dress up. My kids aren't dressing up like zombies and ghouls and all that kind of stuff. They're just dressing up like, I think for the longest time it was Star Wars themed stuff. Yeah. The oldest boys are kind of out of the, they're not even really, they just want the candy now. They don't even want the <laughs> costumes. <laughs> yeah. That episode might seem like a strange one to pick to highlight a whole year of podcasting, but I liked it because it was both memorable and it was a great example of a very typical maturing process many believers go through. Here in the United States, at least, Halloween is a subject that many Christians grapple with. Fred and I had very typical experiences, being skittish at first, but relaxing somewhat with maturity. Later in that episode, we did emphasize the importance of conscience, too. And that if Halloween bothers you more than it bothers us, we would not pressure you into doing anything. In other words, we're not bothered by Halloween, but if you are, it's best to just turn the lights off and watch a movie. The last clip that I have for this month's episode is from this past October. Coincidentally, a year after my discussion with Fred. While Fred and I talked about cultural traditions for Halloween in the United States in our lifetime, Halloween 2017 was a monumental anniversary date celebrated around the world. It was 500 years earlier that Martin Luther unwittingly kicked off the Protestant Reformation by tacking his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. It seemed only fitting to discuss a topic related to the Reformation. But I didn't want to do the same thing everyone else was doing, namely a discussion of the history for the particular day or year. Instead, Nate Pickowitz joined me to talk about the five solos of the Reformation, a set of doctrines that distinguish Protestantism from the Roman Catholic Church. Do you want to start with a general overview of, of what the solas are? Sure. And, yeah, so sola... And why they're important? Uh, it, it, these, are all, these are all Latin phrases, and, and sola means um, uh, alone, it means, you know, by itself alone. And so um, the, the, the concept is, is that, you know, um, these five, they were really credos. Um, they weren't, it's not like a council sat down and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to hash out the five main points and here's what we're going to talk about. And it was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Really what happened is that as the reformers are writing, you see it a lot in Luther's writing, 
Um, you see it in Melanchthon. You see it uh, in, in somewhat in Zwingli and other other reformers. Uh, you certainly do see it in Calvin because he's he's a second generation reformer at this point uh, in in the Reformation history. But uh, but you just see the these these concepts sort of bubbling up. And I uh, I was on a different show and and one of the and the uh, the interviewer said uh, something effective. It was it was though their theology was distilled down into these five solas, and that's that's a pretty good way to think about it, where this really became the heart of their message. So these five solas really became the touch points of the Reformation. These are all five main points of contention that the Reformers had with the Roman Catholic Church, and not only points of contention, but also points of, you know, these are the things that we're going to uh, to say are the, the foundation points of the faith. And so when I was looking into doing a book on Protestantism, you know, the people think about Reformation, they think about Reformed theology, but really, you know, the five points of Calvinism uh, really only touch, you know, a, a small part of this. The five solas really go a lot more broad, so it's it's more mm-hmm. it's more uh, all encompassing. So it seemed like a, a better marker, at least, to sort of illustrate it. So. Um, yeah, the five solos are just five credos, really highlighting um, the main issues surrounding the Reformation. So I'm gonna, like I said, I I kind of skimmed the book. I'm sure. gonna start so off with. Uh, you want me to jump in? Well, I, I was just gonna say I'm gonna start off with the chapter that I did get through, which is Sola Scriptura, sure. and I think from there it might be random. I'm not necessarily gonna <laughs> go in the order that that you wrote on, but we'll start with well, Sola Scriptura. Yeah. I don't well, want to hijack the show, but maybe I'll maybe I'll kind of push us through the order because there is sort of a, a sequence to thinking about them. But um, sola scriptura, sure. so, which is you know scripture alone, sola scriptura uh, has been called the the uh, the formal principle of the Reformation, meaning that this is really the source, uh, the source of authority, the really the source of 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 operating uh, and and deriving doctrine. Because I mean, it works like this. If you don't have a starting point, if you don't have a foundation for your doctrine, then you go to argue for the gospel, and then your opponent says, well, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but this council over here says that, or the magisterium says that, or you're going to argue different points of authority. And so the reformers said, well, no, because this the Bible itself bears witness to the fact that, that the Scripture— is authoritative. Uh, mm-hmm. It's God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, and this is the the source uh, that gets to determine uh, Christian life and practice. It's not that you know that councils aren't important. It's not that you know church traditions and practices aren't important. Usually, they're the best practices. Um, but really, when push comes to shove, who has the right to tell the church what to do? And it, it's God, and it's you know, His authority is mediated through His revealed Word, which is living and active. So, so that was the first thing we're, they're were fighting for was, you know, this is not Scripture plus tradition, Scripture plus uh, the Pope or what's called the Magisterium, His office, His His teaching office, and the bishops around Him, and so on and so forth. Um, this is Scripture alone. Um, you know, if you have a, a, an oppo- a, a opposing view that contradicts the Scriptures then the opposing view is wrong. So that was where they started. They said, if we don't get Scripture right, and really, when you think about it, the Reformation was a battle for the Bible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you look at the work of uh, Wycliffe, who was a pre-reformer. You look at the work of Tyndale. Tyndale worked to translate uh, an English Bible, even Luther. I mean, Luther recognized once uh, Erasmus had published the Greek New Testament in 1516, one of the first things that Luther wanted to do when he got alone with his thoughts and with the manuscripts was, uh, or with, with the Greek New Testament, was to translate the Bible into German. So, you know, the whole thing was about getting the Bible out there and getting the church exposed to what God actually has to say uh, to his people. And once people started reading the Bible for themselves, they realized, my goodness, some of the things that we've been believing and doing all these years have been completely wrong. And uh, that's when they really started to revolt against the abuses and against false doctrine was when they realized what the Word of God actually says. So that that really becomes the basis of authority. That is the formal principle of the Reformation is sola scriptura. So what was the area of contention then uh, from the Catholic side that that the Reformers were, were pushing Scripture so hard? Sure. So, right. So they, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic scholars are saying, well, you know, we believe in Scripture too— uh, but the issue is, um, we also believe that the church, church tradition plays a part of it. So, you know, if if a, if a council made a ruling on something 300 years ago, well, that ruling is just as authoritative as what the scriptures say. And in fact, they were saying that it really supersedes it. They were they were uh, defaulting to their traditions over the scriptures. Um, and so, uh, the the basic contention was, well, unless you have an interpreter, i.e., the pope. Uh, the magisterium, and unless you have an interpreter, then you commoners really don't know what the Bible has to say. Mm-hmm. And at one point, uh, the the Pope at the time uh, basically deemed all common Bibles to be uh, forbidden books. They banned the Bible and said, you know, these are the only, you know, you can have the Latin Vulgate, you can have, you know, such such and such a thing, the, but any Bibles the they were confiscating in nobody and, reads. Exactly. Oh yeah, exactly. So. So the main the main issue was that look you know that's fine we we believe the Bible too but they they wanted again it's it's an issue of authority so um so they just believe that that these rebels these you know these heretics these radicals uh, were just taking the scriptures and twisting them and ignoring tradition and ignoring the Pope and um, so that was their main contention they did not adhere to sola scriptura. For more of that episode, you can visit echozoe.com slash 114, because that was episode 114. There are also three episodes on specific solos in the Echozoe archives, and you can visit the show notes for this episode for links to those episodes. The other two are on the agenda, and hopefully the series will be wrapped up in the next year or so. So that wraps up episode 120. Thanks so much for listening not only to this episode of Echozoe Radio, but 10 blessed years of podcasts at Echozoe Radio. A lot happened in 10 years, but it went by quickly. I'm not going anywhere, though, and Lord willing, there will be at least another 10 years of podcasting in my future. Show notes for this episode will be a little different than normal, as I mentioned at the beginning, but will be available nonetheless. You can find them at echozoe.com slash 120. In those notes, you'll find links to the full episodes that we just heard clips from, as well as a few others. Be sure to check out the website for links to Echo Zoe on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus, and love to connect with you, so follow Liker Circle Echo Zoe Ministries. Oh, and speaking of Google Plus, if you're listening to this and you're on Google Plus, please let me know. It's not a lot of extra work to post the show there, but if no one is seeing it, I might just let it go. Or if there's only a small handful of people on it, as I suspect there might be, 
it may make more sense to just sign you up for email alerts. And speaking of email alerts, those have always been available too, but they get very little mention. If you'd like an email alert, just click on that little envelope looking button on the right side of the website under podcast subscriptions. And when you sign up for that, you'll get one email per month when new episodes post and your email address is never used for anything else. And to be honest, I never even see your email address, so it's safe. You won't get spam from me when you sign up. The service I use for that is MailChimp, which is a lot like Constant Contact, if you're familiar with those services. You go on, you put your email address in, and uh, it'll send you something just to verify that it really is you. I never see any of the information. I get an email that just says that you signed up. There's an optional question on where you're from. It's just out of my own curiosity. I like to see where people are listening from. So you put in your city and state or your city and country, and it's just for my own curiosity. Lastly, don't forget to check out Echozoe Answers. That show depends on your questions, so don't just tune in. Send your questions as well. This podcast episode took a little bit more work than usual to produce. I had to listen to 10 episodes and find the best clips. So I had to put answers on hold for a while. But I do have the next question, and we'll be getting to that soon. So look out for that. If you have a theological question, I'd love to address it for you. So even if I don't know the answer, I'll do my best to research the subject so I can give you a thoughtful and biblical answer. Lord willing, I'll be back next month to kick off the second decade, the 11th year of the show with the May episode of Echozoe Radio. 